This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Oxford University Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Overtime, America's Aging Workforce and the Future of Working Longer, edited by Lisa Berkman and Beth Truesdale. Many policymakers think it's logical, almost inevitable, that Americans will delay retirement and spend more years in the paid labor force. In their new book, Overtime, Lisa Berkman and Beth Truesdale offer a correction to this understanding of the future of the American workforce. Presenting new research from leading scholars across the social sciences, Overtime argues that precarious working conditions, family caregiving responsibilities, poor health, and age discrimination will make it difficult or impossible for many to work longer, especially those who are in lower-wage jobs. Overtime, edited by Lisa Berkman and Beth Truesdale. Out now from Oxford University Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This was supposed to be a four-part series on the history of modern Iran. But, folks, we're actually going to give it to you in five parts because there's just too much ground to cover. In episode three, we left off with the triumph of the Islamic Revolution, which ousted the Shah. This episode, we begin with the period of openness following the revolution shifting into the consolidation of power by Khomeini's Islamic Republic Party, which deftly exploited the seizure of the American embassy by radical Islamist students to accelerate a revolutionary fervor conducive to them. Khomeini's camp marginalized their revolutionary rivals and monopolized power in the assembly convened to draft a new constitution successfully pushing for a maximalist text that enshrined clerical supremacy through Khomeini's principle of the guardianship of the Islamic jurist. Iraq's invasion of Iran under Saddam Hussein provided a pretext to rally the nation against a foreign enemy and behind the new regime. The war was initiated by Iraqi aggression and continued by Khomeini's intransience. It was also a human and societal catastrophe, with hundreds of thousands dead and a generation of veterans left wounded and traumatized. In the aftermath of the war, Khomeini, nearing death, orchestrated the mass execution of thousands of leftist prisoners, mainly but not exclusively from his revolutionary rivals in the People's Mujahideen, or MEK, the left-wing Islamists who had fought the Shah and suffered his brutal repression. The 1988 prisoner massacre was the last in a series of moves, from the U.S. embassy occupation through the prolongation of the war with Iraq that Khomeini's camp had used to consolidate power and sideline and repress their opponents. Among those marginalized was Grand Ayatollah Hussein Ali Montazari, who had been groomed to be Khomeini's successor as supreme leader. But Montazari was outraged and alarmed by the torture and execution of prisoners, concerns he made known to Khomeini in the lead-up to the 1988 massacres. And he was sidelined. Following Khomeini's death in June 1989, a duo of politically savvy leaders on the Khomeiniist right took the reins. Ali Khomeini, 
who had served as president but became supreme leader despite lacking religious credentials, a position he continues to occupy in the present, and longstanding ally and friend Akbar Hashemi Rafsanjani, a trusted lieutenant of Khomeini who took over the newly consolidated presidency. The pair moved quickly to give the cleric-dominated Guardian Council new powers to vet and disqualify candidates for office. Powers they exercised to purge a Khomeiniist left that had advocated for nationalized industry, economic justice, hostility to the U.S. and its allied regimes, and the revolutionary export of Shia revolution across the Middle East. It would be an ironic move because in later years, as Rafsanjani fell out of favor with Khamenei, the Guardian Council would disqualify Rafsanjani from running for the presidency. But at the time, with the Khomeiniist left sidelined, Khamenei and Rafsanjani pursued detente with their enemies in a liberalization of the economy. And that's where this fourth episode ends. In our fifth, and I promise, last episode of this series, we will pick up with Mohammed Khatami's 1997 election to the presidency, which ushered in a reformist politics that would soon find itself deeply frustrated, leading to recurrent mass protest movements met by repression, all amid deepening conflict with the United States, which leads us to the crisis that besets Iran today. We work really hard to make the dig what it is, and I do hope that you've noticed. Our mission is to provide you with a ruthless and extensive analysis of everything. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. We really are aiming to analyze everything. In exchange, here's what we'd like you to do for us. First, please do rate and review the podcast, and encourage both your real-life and internet friends to give us a listen. Our audience has roughly doubled in the past couple years, but, but believe it or not, the vast majority of humans on Earth still have no clue that the dig exists. It's a real tragedy, I know, but you can help by spreading the word. And then, take a quick moment to support us at patreon.com slash the dig. We paywall none of our episodes, and... That means that the way we keep the pod up and running is listeners like you voluntarily contributing. A contribution of any amount, and we will email you our weekly newsletter. They're really excellent companions to each episode, and they're available for free at thedigradio.com, but getting it in your inbox is really nice. If you make a contribution of $10 or more a month, we will send you a book or books in the mail, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. Please take a moment and contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's part four of my interview with Eskandar Siddiqui Borgerdi and Golnar Nikpor. Watch our podcast feed for our last fifth episode on the history of modern Iran. It'll be released in the next few days. Eskander Siddiqui Borgerdi is a professor of contemporary politics and modern history of the Middle East at Goldsmiths College, University of London. He is the author of Revolution and Its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran, associate editor of the journal Politics, and co-edits Radical History of the Middle East. Golnar Nikpor is a professor of history at Dartmouth College with an interest in histories of law, incarceration, and rights in modern Iran. She is currently finishing her first book project, A History of Iranian Prisons and Carcerality in a Global Context, 
is on the editorial collective for the journal Radical History Review and co-edits Radical Histories of the Middle East. Just a few months after the revolution's triumph, on November 4th, 1979, a group of Islamist students seized the U.S. embassy and took the personnel hostage. What sparked that move and who authorized it? And then how would this incident come to fundamentally shape what sort of regime the Islamic Republic would become? The embassy taking in 1979, in the fall of 1979, is a turning point in the early history of the Islamic Revolution and the nascent Islamic Republic. There had been an earlier effort by a group of leftists to occupy the embassy right after the success of the revolution, just a couple of days after the fall, the final fall of the Shah-appointed prime minister and the final success of the revolution. But with that, the hostage takers, the embassy occupiers had been leftists and Khomeini and the provisional government essentially sort of um, stepped in to, to send them home. This was a little bit different because it came at a moment in which the conditions had changed. The U.S. had accepted the Shah, the former Shah, into the country to uh, receive cancer treatments, which angered ordinary um, Iranians and revolutionaries on the ground, including these students who called themselves the students in the line of the imam. So there was definitely the sense among average revolutionary or supporter or fellow traveler of the revolution that there was the possibility of a counter-revolution, another coup, that the Shah might be working with the U.S. or U.S. intelligence towards overthrowing the Islamic uh, Republic. This was certainly drummed up as a possibility by some of the leadership of the Islamic Republic. And there was also clearly an effort to um, discredit the moderates in the government, including the liberal um, provisional prime minister, Mehdi Bazargan, who had just a few days earlier, in days prior to the um, embassy uh, occupation, had met with members of the U.S. administration to sort of quasi-normalize relations. There had been some efforts on the part of the provisional government to reestablish normal diplomatic ties. This came at an inopportune time, in a sense, because the Bazargan's meeting with um, U.S. officials came at an inopportune time. Because just a few days later, the um, embassy is occupied and there is all of this kind of revolutionary fervor re reignited. So this works not only against what might have been uh, the moderating influence of some of the liberals in government, but also against, um, yeah, g generally um, any of the sort of more moderate people within the within the orbit of the of the new government. There is really no evidence that Khomeini knew about the occupation before it was undertaken. Although he quickly moved to support the students and give a message of support to the students, the question is why? Why did he support this? embassy um, occupation and not the earlier one in February. Well, there's a few theories. One is that these these revolutionaries were totally loyal to him. They were calling themselves the Muslim students in the line of the imam, whereas the initial embassy occupation was undertaken by leftists, by, the, um, uh, by armed Marxist revolutionaries. 
But also this was an opportunity for him to further assert um, the sort of control of the more uh, revolutionary clerics against internal foes, that this was actually more of an internal move uh, at the level of some of the, at the level of Khomeini and his clerical uh, lieutenants. But in any event, it had the effect of radicalizing, re-radicalizing the rhetoric of the revolution and in reminding people of the crimes of the U.S. in terms of their association and their being behind the 1953 coup. And for the revolutionaries themselves who occupied the embassy, this was really the primary motivation, that they had already had an anti-imperialist nationalist movement that attempted to have a kind of true full sovereignty for Iranians, and that that was stymied by the imperial powers and by the U.S. in particular. So the students themselves were certainly motivated by um, fears of another coup, whereas the power brokers, the sort of small cadre of power brokers among the clerical uh, elite that was shaping at the time, used the opportunity afforded by by the uh, embassy takeover to better their position vis-a-vis their more moderate and more liberal-oriented internal opponents. Not opponents exactly, but the people within the revolutionary uh, orbit who had more liberal motivations in mind. Eskander? Um, just to kind of emphasize that the Bozaragon government was definitely seen as being quote-unquote liberal. That was how it was actually viewed, and it was, a der- it was actually a derogatory... Uh, term often, and it wasn't just obviously by the Islamists and radical left Islamists, pro Khomeini Islamists, but also by the Tudor Party, which has reconstituted itself um, after returning, you know, many of the the leadership returning from East Germany to Tehran, Um, also members of the the Fadai guerrillas, and many, and the Mujahideen, the People's Mujahideen. So, and, and we should say these forces were actually very much egging on outright confrontation with the United States. So um, just to kind of emphasize what Golnar was saying, um, when this did occur, and obviously we don't know with certainty that this was approved by Khomeini, but given the fact that Hojat al-Islam, Musavi Khomeini Ha, who was a very well-known, who was a kind of, who was often called sort of the the red cleric uh, because of his kind of radical views, given that he was sort of the mentor of these radical Islamist students who took over the embassy and he had very um, close relations with uh, Khomeini's son. There is a sense in which you know th- there was some knowledge that this might happen, but either way, it actually is ultimately immaterial because, exactly as Gonar said, it was capitalized on both to outflank the left um, and also, I guess, really push out or, in a sense, yeah, ma- make the sort of the, the continued tenure of the Baza government impossible. And this is why actually Khomeini referred to it as the second revolution, which I think is important. And yeah, this obviously had um, huge, huge impact, huge, huge repercussions, um, and it's still, in a sense, a wound uh, which has never really healed. And it's and you know, and there's so many stories of um, Iranian immigrants in the United States, you know, facing down, you know, mobs and being attacked, and sort of the level of actually just uh, anti-Iranian hysteria um, was very, very, very pronounced. Um, so you know, it's a very, very important moment, and as Gonzalo said, a turning point. You both discussed how Khomeini exploited the hostage crisis to move against his political rivals in this moment where the Shah had been ousted, but the nature and structure of the Islamic Republic was still rather undefined. How did his camp move to finally and firmly and rather ruthlessly 
consolidate power? So we have the initial referendum um, on the Islamic Republic, um, which, you know, uh, was rather vague, but happened quite swiftly in the aftermath of Khomeini's return. And there was a huge turnout and significant, um, and it was sort of a 98 or 99 percent approved of the abolition of the Anshul regime and the establishment of an Islamic Republic, though there were actually many grumblings from um, left, left-wingers and liberals, secular forces, uh, intellectuals questioning this. Uh, and the fa- actually the Fadoy guerrillas didn't actually participate in this referendum, um, neither did the National Democratic Front, but other groups did. And then gradually, obviously, as time goes on, um, what we seem to see is this very broad coalition from sort of radical Marxists, um, Maoists, Marxist Islamists or Islam or sort of the Mujahideen, the Fadoi guerrillas, the and various Islamists um, and, and sort of religious nationalists, we see that sort of coalition fraying, increasingly fraying, increasingly fraying, increasingly fraying. Um, and obviously the with the hostage crisis, this this is this this is an sort of ongoing process, and this process very much kind of continues. And really and it's also in this same period. Um, and it's actually in December 1979 that we see sort of the referendum on the new constitution. But we need to kind of reverse back a little bit just because the process actually whereby the constitution actually got approved is a rather kind of convoluted and, um, and a complex one. Um, so initially there were sort of calls for a constituent assembly to basically um, review the constitutional draft, which legally trained and various intellectuals who were sort of in Khomeini's orbit and sort of the religious nationalist orbit um, had written up and it was very much based on sort of the French Fifth Republic. It envisioned a lot a sort of a strong centralized sort of um, presidency and so on. But that draft then is um, is basically, you know, the idea was to put that draft to a constituent assembly. Um, initially, actually, Khomeini had not even wanted to put it down to um, put it through the sort of process of a constituent assembly. Initially, he actually wanted to put it straight to a referendum. And there is a lot of debate about whether actually Khomeini, and this actually goes back to this question of whether Khomeini had always envisioned the enshrining of the rule of the Islamic jurists in the constitution, because this initial draft did not contain that. It contained sort of um, provisions around the Guardian Council to ensure that legislation was compatible with the Sharia, but it didn't have this institution of the rule of the Islamic jurist. Nonetheless, Bazar Ghan and others actually said, no, 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 we need to actually have a democratic mandate for this and we need to um, create a, um, a constituent assembly to actually to um, review the constitution and to, in, a, in essence, redraft it with a democratic mandate. And to cut a long story short, and it is a long story, that constituent assembly ends up being much smaller than had originally been envisioned and ends up being dominated by pro-Khomeini Islamist and clerical forces who then basically set about completely redrafting this constitution and then enshrining the rule of the Islamic jurist in that constitution. And this is something which Barzagan ultimately criticises. Many, many, as I said, had, had posed various objections to this and really saw the writing on the wall. And, and they were very much powerless to do anything um, about it. This constitution is then put to a vote in December 79. So this is after, you know, a couple of months after the beginning of the hostage crisis. It's a very, very kind of radical kind of atmosphere in this period. Uh, but we nevertheless see a decreased turnout um, from about, I think, 20 million to 16 million people participating in that. And it's in the aftermath of this that we begin to see the sort of process of elimination of various adversaries of the um, of the pro-Khomeini Islamists, including the Mujahideen, the Fadais, the left, and so on. So increasingly, they might find themselves marginalised. 
push and 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 it sort of manifests itself in various ways one was the question of actually trying to impose mandatory hijab in um, state ministries um, another one was actually the closure of a very, very respected and widely read newspaper called Ayan Dagan. So it's very much like an attack on press freedom. And like I said, this is sort of the, uh, gradually kind of um, speeding up the, the degree and succession of attacks on what many had actually thought the revolution, you know, the, the purpose that, you know, sort of the, the principles which motivated many to rise up against the Shah to establish a kind of a much more freer and democratic order. So basically all of these um, are gradually being eroded and increasingly eroded. And the person and sort of the the party leading the charge is the Islamic Republic Party, headed by the very capable uh, but quite cunning uh, Ayatollah uh, Beheshti. And um, it's in this same period that we see the election of Abul Hassan of Bani Saad as the first president of the Islamic Republic. And again, just to cut a long story short, um, we increasingly see a sort of standoff between the IRP, the Islamic Republic Party, and Abul Hassan of uh, Bani Saad. And this carries on despite the invasion of um, Iran by um, Iraq um, in, in 1980 and really sort of comes to a final kind of denouement in June of 1981, where we basically see um, this really very, very bloody repression of partisans of Abul Hassan al Banisad, the president, and the Mujahideen. Um, and because of basically Bani Saad, the president's increasing isolation, he increasingly kind of got closer and closer to the Mujahideen um, as a kind of a counterbalance. Um, but like I said, in June 1981, uh, we see this really kind of bloody um, repression by the kind of the, the, the sort of increasingly consolidated regime and the revolutionary guards. And Bani Saad and the leader of the Mujahideen, Masoud Rajavi, flee into exile. They start to basically try and establish a, a government uh, in exile, and this, in this and this then triggers very much almost like a, a mini civil war within in, in Iran, um, and actually would lead to the death of a great many of sort of the leading personnel, sort of the pro Khomeini Islamists, who are sort of you know who are very much were amongst the most prominent leaders of the revolution, such as Beheshti, who I just mentioned. So there was be a bombing at the Islamic Republic Party's headquarters which would kill in excess of about 70 people, sort of leading figures. And even though Mujahideen hasn't claimed it, it's, it's widely un understood that they were culpable. And there was also sort of a bombing of the prime minister's office, especially to Bani Saad's successor, Muhammad Ali Rajai, who basically became the next uh, president, and his prime minister, Jawad uh, Bahonar. And this would be in August 1981. So it was very shortly after this crackdown. So, and this would be an ongoing for a number of years, actually. Um, so basically, the regime would, on the one hand, be, you know, would be merciless in its repression of uh, members of the Mujahideen and, and other sort of adversaries as it saw them. Um, and likewise, there would be a number of attacks on regime officialdom. And this very much obviously completely closed down um, any sort of space for um, democratic deliberation or taking a step back. Um, so we have to think, there, was there are numerous things going on here. On the one hand, there's this sort of mini-civil war, there's the invasion by Iraq and, um, and various other things. Obviously, the hostage crisis as well, which really sort of contribute and catalyze this kind of real atmosphere of, 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 of radicalism and, and obviously gives in many ways a carte blanche to uh, the Islamist regime to to pursue the, the any policy any the policies which it deems um, necessary uh, both to further the war effort as it sees it um, but also to um, sort of guarantee its own consolidation and the and entrenchment. Connor, Eskandar talks about I think most of the important uh, moments in the political 
consolidation of power between the different forces vying for a role in the new government. So I want to kind of take a different tack and talk about some of the institutions that are founded in this time that allow the new government, especially the Khomeinist wing of the and the Islamic Republic Party, um, the opportunity and the possibility of consolidating power against their foes. First, I should note that the Islamic Republican Party, that's the party that is basically the mainstream of the Khomeinist movement, right? So it's Khomeini and his closest allies. They're mostly clerics, but not only. So it includes a number of the most important figures um, of this time, many of whom um, Eskandar mentioned. That's set up in February 1979. It stays in a political force until 1987 when it kind of frays even further. Khomeini is worried, and and the members of the IRP are worried, about the fact that they don't really yet have any kind of military wing, right? They're clerics. They're not the armed insurrectionists that we had mentioned. They are still concerned. They've over, you know, the Shah's army has, they, you know, they've the Shah has lost, but they're still... They're still percolating in the air, that possibility of a comeback or a counter-revolution or a coup. So they're worried about that on the one hand. And they also know that the armed insurrectionists of the left, both the Mujahideen, so the Islamist leftists and the Marxist Fedayan, they're militias at this point. They are part of the reason that the revolution is won. They actually have some of the last shootouts with the with the military, right? And so because of this, there is a sort of concern about creating a situ- uh, some kind of parallel military force that, unlike the armed forces, the Shah's armed forces will have been created entirely in its as as a support for the new Islamic revolution and Islamic republic, right? So there's not, not going to be any concern about lingering loyalties to the Shah. So at this point, in May of 1979, um, Khomeini... By Khomeini's order, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is founded, the Sepah Pasdaran, who remain, albeit in, you know, there's a long, you know, the 43 years of the Islamic Republic means that there's 43 complicated years of the history of Sepah Pasdaran. But suffices for this context to note that this new, essentially hyper-loyal paramilitary force is founded. And by September of that year, it's 11,000 strong, and it is cutting its teeth fighting against the Kurdish insurrection and will soon be really sort of making a name for itself as some of the most dedicated and initially successful cadres in the fight against Iraq after Iraq's invasion of Iran. So this is a huge shift, right, to go from not really having a dedicated military organization. And And the Revolutionary Guard Corps is a is a kind of it's an interesting, it's not a traditional army, right? It's not traditionally trained. It's something like a hybrid between these guerrilla organizations. Um, and it has this kind of um, decentralized guerrilla structure um, and something like a state military. So it's, and this remains um, part of the military apparatus of the Islamic Republic going forward is that it has these dual and hybrid military and paramilitary structures. So it has a traditional army, but it also has the Revolutionary Guard Corps. It has traditional uh, police forces, but it also has kind of shadow versions of, of all of these different institutions. So there's also the institutionalization of a new kind of military, policing military uh, apparatus of the state. At the same time, there's 
a lot happening in the first year of the revolution, right? People call it the springtime of the revolution, and it's really a period of openness, relative openness. There's all these new newspapers, all these magazines, and at least in the first few months after the fall of the Shah, it feels like this incredible moment of of openness. Um, at the same time, there are these these new this new formulation called the committees, revolutionary committees. And those are decentralized groups who are essentially taking on um, law enforcement duties, not only law enforcement, also some social social services, because the state has collapsed, right? There isn't this, this sort of functional state apparatus. It's in total disarray. So there are these revolutionary committees uh, who are largely extremely loyal to Khomeini, although initially there are also leftists, and um, other uh, revolutionary forces. And they're a part of how initially dissidents and so forth are rounded up. The executions against dissidents, um, against uh, former members of the government, I should say, begin almost immediately. The first extrajudicial killings that happen in the revolution happen two days after the success of the revolution when a couple of members of the highest ranking members of the Shah's secret police, Salvak, are killed. But this goes from being something that is happening to royalists and members of Savak and sort of famous um, figures in the former government to in eventually sort of people who are arrested evidently on for for sex work or like social social deviants. Yeah, social deviants, right? But there's they're actually also being called counter-revolutionaries. Um, there's this one incredible, you know, the so, there's these quotes from some of the people who are undertaking these extrajudicial killings famed hanging judge of the revolution and so forth, who are talking about people who price gouge, bazaar merchants who price gouge are counter-revolutionaries, um, people who sell drugs are counter-revolutionaries. So these are all people who are going to be eliminated very swiftly and a new utopian Islamic society is going to be produced. So all of that is happening simultaneously to this moment of feeling of seeming openness and 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 sort of democratize, radical democratization. And it is that kind of cacophonous context in which um, the IRP and the Revolutionary Guard Corps and the people most loyal to Khomeini and to the cleric and to clerical rule are slowly but surely sort of positioning themselves against and attempting to use these the political context that that Eskandar outlined so so well um, in their own favor. Zooming out from Iranian domestic politics, the hostage crisis and the revolution were also, of course, a bombshell in the geopolitical context for the entire Middle East and also for the entire informal U.S. empire, because the Shah had been this key pillar of U.S. power in the region. What were these broader repercussions for the U.S.-dominated system? And then what were its consequences, particularly for the relationship between the U.S. and Iran of what Khomeini called the first and second revolution? Because the U.S., of course, would embark on this permanent campaign to isolate, demonize, and destabilize. And Iran would, would, would craft a foreign policy that would work across the region to counter the U.S. and its proxies, particularly the Gulf states in Israel. So when, obviously, Khomeini really returns to Iran and emerges as this undisputed leader of the revolution, he obviously had his vision clearly exceeds the territorial borders of Iran. Um, and he's very, very quick, actually, to pronounce his criticism of the Ba'athist regime in Iraq and sort of the oppression of Arab Shias 
in uh, in in that country. He's very vocal in his criticism of the Saudi monarchy, and actually the sort of term of quote unquote like American Islam emerges. And really, obviously, he is very much aspiring for leadership of the sort of broader Islamic world. Um, and this obviously, like all revolutions, I mean, one could look at the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, by their very nature, they start actually calling into question the norms and principles and tacit understandings which underwrite the international order. So there's a very much a clear challenge there. There's very much an idea that this revolution is universal, actually, and it's something which ought to be exported, and that there are sort of willing audiences, eager audiences for the reception of its message. Including among non- non-Shias and non-Muslims. No, yes. I mean, especially you could say not you could Muslims, but you could say um, but more broadly, obviously, appealing to maybe um, the third world. And they are very much tapping into certain strains of third worldism, maybe Khomeini less so, but that's very much in the ether. Uh, that's very much in the atmosphere, for sure. But definitely a- appealing to Islamists, because obviously one has to think that the Iranian Revolution was extraordinary uh, in the sense that it was the only time where you know, Islamists came to power through a popular revolution of that scale. It was very much, it kind of very much left the huge swaths of the Muslim world in absolute wonderment. They didn't like, how is this possible? And it, like, you know, Khomeini managed to do it. Um, whereas many other Islamist movements absolutely uh, were either found themselves repressed or they became more and more extreme and had to sort of engage in sort of terroristic activities and so on and so forth. So this was something which did have a huge, huge, um, captivated uh, the imagination of many, but it was also then profoundly um, unsettling. Um, and, and also one of, the, one of the sort of the policies or one of the sort of the broad approach rather, which Khomeini articulated was sort of neither East nor West. So there is a sense where it's a certain continuity of non-alignment, but it's definitely not. It's sort of, it's actually, you know, Islamic is the actual, so neither East nor West, we're talking about the Islamic um, alternative. And yeah, and that quickly obviously mobilizes opposition in, in many ways. So obviously Saddam Hussein sees um, Iran in disarray. Uh, the Shah's army, which had been one of the most power, you know, one of the largest in the world, is again is seen in disarray. There is the purging. Many sort of senior officers are leaving. He also sees it as an opportunity um, to renegotiate the Algiers Accord of 1975, uh, which the Shah had really kind of in many ways. Um, outmaneuver him and impose favorable terms to Iran. So he thought it as an opportunity to, uh, if he could invade Iran, either seize the sort of Arab populace, uh, the populace sort of um, these regions and oil rich regions of Khuzestan, or perhaps use that occupation as a, uh, as a basis for which to renegotiate that Algiers Accord from a position of strength. So that is obviously ongoing. That's sort of part of, that's, that's an ongoing thing that goes on for eight years and it's, you know, this absolutely devastating conflict. But in other arenas, obviously Iran is trying to have an influence. So obviously there's the 1982 um, invasion, Israeli invasion of Lebanon, where we see then the Revolutionary Guard being dispatched to help. And this is where Hezbollah ultimately emerges. So we have this situation where previously Iran had been part of, you know, this uh, an integral part of the Nixon doctrine, this twin pillar policy. The Shah had been the gendarme, you know, of the Middle East. And while the U.S. was preoccupied with, with, with the war in Vietnam, the Shah, in a sense, took it upon himself to enforce you know, the security and guarantee the security interests uh, of the United States. 
um, to a situation where Khomeini is obviously challenging the legitimacy of the international order uh, as dominated by the United States, as defined by, as challenging the legitimacy of key US allies. And it's sort of promoting an alternative uh, revolutionary Islamist model um, in Iraq. Um, so connection with the, with the Dawa party, uh, which would then go on to play a very significant uh, role in post-2003 Iraq. Um, Hezbollah, which obviously is a major power broker um, today, and so on. So we basically see a fundamental um, challenge to this American-dominated uh, um, order, and it's one with which uh, you know, still very much divines um, Iran today. Connor? I want to think about 1979 as a hinge moment. As Eskandar mentioned, there is still at this 1979-1980 moment um, within the Iranian revolutionary context, very much a circulating set of ideas drawn from the revolutionary ethos of the generation leading up to 1979. So third worldism, revolutionary Marxisms, revolutionary non-alignment, and so forth. And that, that absolutely gets taken up by different parts of the revolutionary coalition. You know, for one small example of this, even the students who take the U.S. embassy and occupy it, after they uh, initially occupy it, they wind up releasing 13 of the people whom they had been holding, including African-American embassy staff. And this was in the sort of ethos of this, these are weird linked struggles against sort of imperialism, racism, uh, and, and so forth. So you very much see that in, in, there's a million little examples like that. At the same time, this is also the marker of something new. There are, of course, Islamist movements in the decades prior to this, but this is a real breakthrough of a mass political movement that takes Islam as the glue that is holding this enormous millions and millions of people who are going out onto the streets together. So it's a mass Islamist movement. And that very year, there are other meaningful Islamist uh, efforts. There's the famed Grand Mosque seizure in Saudi Arabia when a militant group attempts to, they, they take over uh, the Masjid al-Haram, which is a holy site in Islam, maybe the holiest site in, the, in Mecca. And they're calling for the overthrow of the House of Saud. Now, of course, they're not successful. <laughs> the, the Saudi Arabia remains Saudi Arabia. But the idea of this kind of Islamic militancy is very much gaining more and more kind of mainstream traction. So it's a good kind of way to think about it is that the Islamic revolution represents both something of the last great anti-colonial revolution and maybe this uh, first instantiation of this new type of political ethos. That, that's really interesting. It's is this Islamist revolution that's fundamentally influenced by Marxist third worldism and prior currents of secular anti-imperialist nationalism, but that also signals the decline of Marxist third worldism and secular nationalism more generally and the ascendance of Islamism as the principal vehicle for opposition to U.S. empire and the dominant order in the region. One shouldn't overstate the extent to which these ideological, the ideological clarity of some of these movements leads to totally coherent political decision-making. Like, it doesn't all stem from ideology. In fact, there's all sorts of decisions, real 
world decisions that are made by the Islamic government in Iran, but also some of their adversaries that seem to indicate that ideology is in some cases put on the back burner for matters of sort of practicality. The best example of this in the early 80s, I think, is that for the first several years of the Iran-Iraq war, Israel is providing supplies to Iran, not to not to Iraq. And this is because they see Iraq as a, and Saddam Hussein's government as a greater threat to their stability. So we have to, you know, account for the big picture ideological shifts that are happening while also being attentive to the fact that these people aren't ideological robots. They're not making decisions that will, you know, if you're looking always for the kind of grand narrative of imperialists versus anti-imperialists, you're not going to get satisfaction in terms of understanding the dynamics um, at work. And in fact, different different groups within the Islamic Republic government and within the Islamic Republic clerical elite have really different orientations to the idea of exporting revolution and how important that is to their idea of the revolution. They all have some relationship to that idea, but some some people in the Islamic Republic elite are clearly much less invested in putting manpower and time and energy into that project as opposed to just sort of consolidating rule at home. The Iran-Iraq War, which we've touched on a few times inevitably already, began with Iraq's invasion of Iran in September 1980, just over a year after the revolution. What factors led to this war, which lasted nearly eight years and killed hundreds of thousands of people? What factors led to the war erupting when it did? And how did such a brutal war dominating the first decade of the Islamic Republic and obviously traumatizing Iranian society, how did that shape the republic's trajectory? So, I mean, as I said, um, I think it does go back to certain disagreements, which, which some conflicts which had pre-existed uh, the revolution, so ongoing tensions around, for instance, the Shaf al-Arab waterway and, and so on, which... Saddam Hussein was not happy with the outcome of the Algiers Accord, as I said. But obviously, it's it's much deeper. So, with the revolution, as I said, as I was saying, uh, it was very much calling into question the legitimacy of this Ba'athist regime. And given um, the fact that there is a significant or majority Arab Shia majority in Iraq, Saddam Hussein couldn't but see the Iranian Revolution as um, a threat, um, and you know the Islamists in Iran very much were openly hostile, and that sort of that hostility uh, it was also there's a continuity there because as we as we might remember, Khomeini spent you know over a decade in Iraq in exile. So I think it's the fact that this you know whenever any revolution happens, it sort of it has this fundamentally destabilizing, it poses a challenge to other powers um, in the region. That could be whether it's the United States or whether it's the the Saudis. Um, and also, I think, you know, Saddam Hussein just sort of saw it as an opportunity, as I said, in order to make maybe a quick gain. And I think, you know, he didn't anticipate what, what he was actually dealing. He didn't really fully understand what he was dealing with uh, in Khomeini, because obviously when he invades, um, there is kind of very much a both a revolutionary mobilization in order to expel the Iraqi army but there's also very much a nationalist. So they very much kind of tap in also to um, a degree of sort of nationalist sentiment for the first two years um, until um, the Iraqi forces are expelled um, from the country. But then what Saddam didn't realise is that um, Khomeini would, in essence, and sort of Islamist society, sort of lieutenants would push to continue the war into um, Iraq and then ultimately have this sort of maximalist set of demands whereby 
um, sort of the removal of Saddam Hussein was sort of the the ultimate kind of the the goal and horizon of of the war. I mean, it was the ultimate sort of um, demand, uh, which was very unlikely and never going to happen, and basically resulted in the continu- continuation of the war. And there are a number of occasions in which um, ceasefires were proposed, but they were actually jettisoned. So Iraq started the war, but Iran continued it, essentially. But continued it, yes, continued it and did, and did so needlessly at the cost of, you know, tens and tens of thousands of lives. There are various reasons of this. I mean, I think the fact of this sort of per- perpetual crisis was very conducive to this sort of hegemonization of the language of martyrdom, of sacrifice for the this sort of sanctified state. Yeah, I mean, colonize the life world, as it were, in terms of um, the values which uh, the Islamists wanted to see absolutely kind of valorized and crowded out um, sort of any other kind of alternative view or uh, perspective on the war or the actual the reasonability of actually continuing the war and all these sorts of things. So um, it was on the one hand, there's this external challenge to the world, to the international system. uh, But there was very much also internal motivations, I think, uh, deep seated ones for continuing it. Um, and it led actually very much to the consolidation of Sigona outlined very nicely the emergence of the Revolutionary Guard. But it's associated very much in the course of the war where we see it really develop as a professional force. And it's, like, you know, and it's in this period where young men like um, Qasim Soleimani, who would become very, very significant later, or Barghad Qalibaf, who's the current Speaker of Parliament, and so on and so forth, sort of a whole generation of young men would, in a sense, test their mettle be shaped by this war, irreparably so. And, and it, this would actually massively go on to define their understanding of Iran's own sort of security doctrine, the idea that, you know, Iran was invaded, that it needs to constantly be on the watch out to this and have, you know, and, and actually have a strategy which can um, defend it, defend itself against the risk of this ever happening again. So like I said, this sort of shaped very much um, a generation that would then go on to become uh, significant players and it would, you know, very much sort of define, um, yeah, sort of hegemonic discourse about, you know, around martyrdom, around the sacrifices which were made by people who served in the Revolutionary Guard, the Basij, these basically Islamist paramilitary forces. And, um, and yeah, and also it would create a constituency of, a significant constituency of veterans and the family of veterans and, and, and quote-unquote martyrs who died in this war, who then significantly, you know, subsequently factions, fa- factions within the political elite would have to maybe, and often onto the right, but obviously abroad the political class, would have to attend to and service their needs and, and, and speak to. So it really transforms in many ways the political culture uh, of the country uh, on a mass scale. And I think that's really kind of important today. It also provides a context, as I've already been saying, to like just really clamp down internally. So apart from clamping down on the left in 83, and even like even even the Tudor party and the, the Fadai guerrilla majority faction, um, who were in essence, like sort of, I don't say uncritical, but were loyal in many ways to the um, Khomeini's project, or definitely weren't adversarial, are completely expunged and driven, many of them driven into exile or imprisoned and tortured. Also, I mean, if we just go back to the revolution, just remember the, the importance of workers and it's sort of in 79, we see the emergence of various workers councils, um, which were very kind of important. And it's by 82 that they're, in a sense, prescribed as well. Um, and actually leftist elements have been quite, have been quite sort of formative in that experiment. And again, we see the beginnings and we see increasingly the emergence of what would this become, this sort of corporatist sort of 
state with vertical relations, you know, uh, in very much integrating um, workers into this sort of corporatist um, arrangement. Um, so there's lots of things going on, basically, but in sort of consolidation of the state's identity is for one, and obviously clamping down on internal um, dissent is, is very much at the core of it. And just to highlight some of the complexities of the geopolitics here, the U.S. is backing Saddam Hussein at this point, when really not that long before that, the U.S. had been supporting the Shah against Iraq. And then not that long after, the U.S. would go to war in Iraq after Iraq invaded Kuwait. Okay, you know, that's a very important um, point that you raised because exactly because the challenge which Khomeini posed um, to uh, regional uh, states such as Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, um, as well as um, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, actually the Gulf states also, in a sense, bankroll Saddam's war effort. Um, and obviously the United States plays this formative role in providing, uh, in a sense, facilitating its purchase of uh, chemical weapons, which are then used in the course of the Iran-Iraq um, war um, and, and, and West Germany obviously plays a very important role here as does France, it's not just the United States but the Gulf states actually in many ways bankroll this uh, war effort um, in order to contain revolutionary Iran and then subsequently obviously in the Gulf War, as you, the first Gulf War that you mentioned, it's exactly because, I mean one of the major reasons is because Saddam Hussein in essence doesn't want to pay back this debt which he owes um, to Kuwait. So in a sense, the legacy of the Iran-Iraq war then spills over and then continues um, both internally within Iran. So, I mean, there's so many um, internal fighting, uh, fighting, there's so much internal fighting about who gets, to, who gets to define the Iraq war. Who are the martyrs? I mean, who do the martyrs belong to? I mean, these are sort of, these are sort of ongoing discussions and were subsequently, and we see this again coming up in the reformist period, the Ahmadinejad period and so on. But as well as obviously, yeah, I mean, uh, the fact that this, this, the confrontation subsequently with the invasion of um, Kuwait by Saddam Hussein, I mean, the roots of that, at least in part, uh, are in the Iran-Iraq war, but they also go back, obviously, further um, to the border dispute between um, Kuwait and Iraq. And then again, though, the U.S. was also on both sides of the Iran-Iraq war because the Reagan administration also, while backing Saddam, was secretly selling weapons to Iran to use the proceeds to fund the Contra war against the Sandinista government, Sandinista government in Nicaragua. The geopolitics are very confusing. Yeah, I mean, one need one need do no more than remember Kissinger's famous quote on the war, which is, it's a pity both sides can't lose. <laughs> but um, in a sense, both sides do lose. It's a brutal war for eight years that devastates ordinary people in both countries alike. The geopolitics are confusing and brutal, and the, the results are extraordinarily, extraordinarily brutal for ordinary people. I want to mention a little bit more about that, because I think it really... You cannot overemphasize how important the war is in Iran, not only as a matter of practical reality, but as a cultural touchstone. The generation who grows up um, in the aftermath of the revolution and in the context of the war, to this day, remarks about their, this is a formative and foundational sort of cultural moment, maybe even more so than the revolution. Untold numbers, I mean, Thousands upon thousands upon tens of thousands of Iranians go to the war front. They fight and die, get injured and come back as, as now disabled veterans. And I should note here that there is an enormous amount of evidence of Saddam Hussein's use of um, chemical weapons. And this was devastating for the, the Iranians who were fighting in that context. So there's 
enormous number of disabled Iranians who come back with issues in their lungs. And that remains a problem. Um, and the need of this government to sort of attend to those new, newly disabled um, uh, veterans becomes this constant sort of crisis that it has to manage. But the first decade after the revolution, I mean, there's a revolution and then an eight-year-long war. So there is a just kind of constant crisis. And again, as Eskandar mentioned, a civil war and so forth. But I think some of the cultural ways in which the government talks about and propagandizes the war are important to note here. For instance, the war is called throughout the throughout its time the imposed war. That's sort of the official way that it's discussed, because of course the war is initially an Iraqi uh, adventure and a deadly one at that. It's also called the the efforts at the at the front are called the sacred defense. It ha- there is a nationalist imaginary of needing to def- protect Iran's territorial integrity, which has always been extraordinarily important in uh, Iranian nationalist discourses since the 19th century loss of lands to the Russians and the and the Brits. But it's also, of course, got a, a religious tenor to it as well. The idea of the sacred defense, the the important battles in the war are given names like the you know the, they're all the important um, effort, war efforts are given names that are uh, religiously oriented. And so there is this sort of important imaginary, a kind of Iranian Shia nationalist, but also sort of Islamic internationalist ethos that is circulating. But ordinary Iranians are living in a war culture. There is a, they're, they're told that they have to give up you know, sort of creature comforts. Everyone has to sort of pitch into the war effort. And there is really clear evidence that even at a sort of ordinary people who are maybe not thrilled with the Islamic Republic or even just sort of, you know, lukewarm on it, this is a moment where everyone experiences the invasion of Iraq as a real territorial threat and a threat to Iranian lives. So there is um, absolutely a kind of nationalist ethos. I mean, the um, the Islamic Republic has to release some of the fighter pilots, the Shah's fighter pilots from prison, because they don't have people who can fly these high level sort of American, you know, like F-14s and stuff. And there's some worry about doing this. Like, are they going to be loyal? They've been in prison. But the sense of, you know, you get a sense of the kind of nationalist ethos here by the fact that these fighter pilots immediately go and do as they're told and attack do the attacks as they're told. And there's very, you know, there's some defections, but for the most part, there is this kind of coming together of all of these forces that you wouldn't think would be coming together to defend Iran against Iraqi intransigence and occupation. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Polity Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Making Money Work for Us, How MMT Can Save America by L. Randall Ray. Modern monetary theory, or MMT, has become a hotly debated topic, and in recent years, it has drawn attention and support from progressives like AOC and Bernie Sanders. In this engaging new book, Randy Ray, who is one of the leading advocates of MMT, explains what MMT is and how it could revitalize the U.S. 
As Ray shows, MMT takes a radical view of government finance, arguing that governments can't run out of money and that taxes don't actually fund spending. In this way, MMT implies a novel economic framework that could not only eliminate unemployment and poverty, but also create a new moral basis for progressive public policy. Making Money Work for Us, How MMT Can Save America by L. Randall Ray. Out this November from Polity Press. Learn more and pre-order at politybooks.com. Ayatollah Khomeini died in June of 1989, and he was replaced as supreme leader by Ali Khamenei, a leading political figure who, surprisingly to me, preparing for this interview, lacked much clerical stature. Meanwhile, Khamenei's friend, Akbar Hashemi Rafsanjani, who had been a close ally of Khomeini, took over the presidency. What was the significance of this pair emerging on top after the republic's singular charismatic leader and religio-political authority died? And how did they partner to reshape Iran along lines that, particularly on the economic front, perhaps, diverged from the revolution's more radical promises, a period that's been compared to the French revolutionary moment of Thermidor? Um, I think we need to rewind slightly just to in in the latter years of the war, whereby um, it becomes clear to the Islamist elite and comes clear eventually to Khomeini as well that the much that the sort of much awaited the promised sort of victory uh, isn't forthcoming and as a result um, Khomeini needs to sort of t- takes it upon himself to accept the um, UN Security Council resolution 598 and accept the ceasefire um, with um, Iraq um, and he calls this sort of famously you know, consuming the, the poison chalice. Um, so it's very much, I mean, it, it, it isn't this sort of glorious victory which had been heralded. And it's actually very much a bitter pill which he is um, compelled to swallow and very much in the interests of consolidating the regime as he nears death. But there are a number of other things which actually, another, a number of other steps which he takes uh, pursuant to that aim uh, one which is particularly infamous is the 1988 um, mass sort of pr- prison sort of mass executions, whereby as many as 5,000 um, political prisoners are summarily executed in inquisitorial trials. And is that is that sort of terror because of wartime panic? Um, basically, once the ceasefire has been ceasefire has been accepted, the Mujahideen, the People's Mujahideen, which at this point is allied allied with. Saddam Hussein, and actually has is based in Iraq, launches a uh, basically an attack, an assault, um, a cross-border assault, very much in this uh, belief that they are going to be uh, welcomed with open arms and take Tehran. Um, little do they know that there was very much an ambush waiting for them, and they are just absolutely sort of decimated. What happens then is that the Islamic Republic uses this as a pretext to massacre these 5,000, as many as 5,000 uh, prisoners, many of whom were members of the People's Mujahideen. And this is obviously is outrageous nevertheless, because many of these, many of those who were imprisoned um, were basically come close to serving the end of their terms, uh, were due to be released, and had nothing to do with this actual assault. Um, and also, I should say that many, many sort of um, leftists, many, many sort of secular 
Marxist, Leninist, Marxist, Leninist, uh, Marxist, independent Marxists, uh, Maoists, and so on, um, were also executed. So some have sort of speculated that this was a way, in a sense, of consolidating um, the regime uh, following his death. And, and, and the reason why that might have some plausibility is because one of the figures, the notable figures, who objected to um, what was happening in Iran's prisons was that it was the figure of Ayatollah Hossein Ali Montazeri, who was the designated successor of Khomeini and was meant to become the next supreme leader. In a number of letters, he actually objects to what is happening. He says this is not actually, this is not legitimate uh, in sort of uh, Islamic juridical terms, uh, jurisprudential terms. This isn't legitimate. Khomeini was sort of testing to see who had the stomach for this kind of... I mean, that's one hypothesis. That is basically a hypothesis that um, this was something which was to consolidate the regime, testing who had the metal, ensuring that the transition would be um, relatively swift. Or it might just simply be that, um, you know, given the deep animosity and enmity which existed with the Mujahideen, that there was very much a thirst and a, for revenge and actually um, to take these kinds of, to take this step against this organisation and use this opportunity as one sort of final, uh, as one final kind of chance to completely decapitate it as an organisation and as a threat to the regime, because it was the biggest um, threat really to um, the Islamic Republic. So that's one thing. And obviously, before he die, before he dies, he also pronounces on Salman Rushdie's um, satanic verses um, and issues this fatwa saying that the spilling of uh, Rushdie's blood is, is halal, is legitimate. And of course, you know, I, he did not read the satanic verses. This is what he, he was simply informed, probably in a very stilted fashion of what the, what the satanic verses actually contained. Um, and again, this was seen as, again, sort of consolidating the regime, ensuring that the sort of the much sort of anticipated, at least certain elements anticipated some degree of normalization, the, re- and the opening up of Iran, and maybe the return of the Islamic liberals and so on. This, and again, this is often, it's been again speculated that this was a way of forestalling that possibility and ensuring that relations with uh, the West were very much going to be fraught for a number of years to come. It was also seen as very much, again, Khomeini's sort of last attempt to very much situate Iran as the leader of the of the sort of the Muslim world and you know and and sort of uh, the preeminent uh, force amongst amongst Islamist uh, parties and organisations and such. So you know this is a one way, this is sort of one of the moves that um, that Khomeini. These are the various moves which Khomeini uh, takes or makes uh, in order to um, sort of consolidate the regime um, in his aftermath. Um, and obviously the other part of this is. Um, the, in a sense, designation or the election through the Assembly of Experts of, of Ayatollah Khamenei. Um, I'm sorry, I should say Hojat al-Islam uh, Khamenei because he wasn't an Ayatollah. I mean, there's lots of debates whether he was even actually um, a Mujtahed, basically someone who has the license to practice Ejtahad. I mean, uh, he was generally seen as more of a political activist, cleric, apparatchik, um, very capable speaker, orator. But not someone uh, by any standard who was um, learned, seen as learned, um, in particularly in Islamic jurisprudence. Um, uh, he certainly wasn't an ayatollah with a significant following, and usually it's seen or argued that it was Rafsanjani who was the key sort of engineer or the person who was essential to engineering this process. And obviously, before Khamenei dies, actually, he but he lays the groundwork for um, certain amendments in the constitution. So it's also in this in the late 80s that we see the abolition of the prime minister's office, 
We see it streamlined into a single presidency, which then obviously Rassan Jani would ultimately come to occupy as the, as, as the, the president uh, in the aftermath of the war. And, um, and obviously Ayatollah Khomeini, so Hojat al-Islam Khamenei is then uh, in place as the supreme leader. And it was generally thought that Rassan Jani was the more capable, um, had the upper hand, and really, uh, Khamenei would act as something of a a figurehead in this arrangement. But they had a, you know, they, the two of them, Khamenei and Rasul, had a long-established relationship, and you know, prior to the revolution, had actually shared a home and lived together, um, and had a sort of a long-standing uh, friendship and partnership. And they were actually both regarded in the context of the Islamic Republic Party as being on sort of the right of the party, um, not on the left of the party. So they were very much politically aligned in this period. Both of them actually were quite hostile to the left and, and, and for, for pragmatic reasons were very much of the mind that the regime had to, in a sense, normalise its relations or to some extent reach a kind of a detente or some degree of normalisation with the Gulf states who had obviously supported Saddam Hussein throughout the war effort. They thought, saw that as absolutely essential, as well as actually just rebuild this absolutely kind of war-torn economy. So, and this is why I sort of, Raf Sanjani very much sort of demand, sort of dubbed himself or he was, he was often called or defined as sort of the commander of the reconstruction. So sort of normalizing with regional powers um, and reconstruction at home were very much at the top of the agenda um, for Raf Sanjani and initially also um, Khamenei um, as well. Connor? I want to talk just for a minute more about the 1988 prison massacres, because I think they're important enough to dwell on. As Eskandar outlined, upwards of four or 5,000 people were likely killed, although we don't have a sort of reliable way to know exactly how many were killed. The evidence that we do have about the prison massacre is drawn largely from those former prisoners who were eventually released. Um, because some were uh, not killed and were eventually released. I mean, large numbers were slaughtered. And what we know about the conditions at the time are drawn from these testimonies, these first-person testimonies of the people who survived the massacre. But we also know a little bit about it from the information that the Ayatollah, that Ayatollah Montazeri published or that he his family leaked um, after his death about the, about the events. So there's a lot of research that still needs to be done on exactly what happened, and hopefully someday that research can be done. But I want to note that Montazeri, the person who was meant to be the next leader of the Islamic Republic, who for the majority of the 1980s um, was viewed by the overwhelming uh, majority of um, Iranians as the person who was slated to be the next um, leader after Khomeini's death. But Montazeri is falling out with Khomeini and with the sort of loyal cadres of the IRP starts a little bit earlier than even 1988, because as early as um, 83, 84, he's talking about the violence that is happening in Iran's prisons and the clear evidence of torture. And it's his efforts to publicize torture in prisons and to speak out against them uh, against this this work, albeit always framed in total support of Khomeini and a belief in the system and 
an understanding of himself as part of the revolutionary elite. And framing those as abuses that are deviating from the yeah, system. Yeah, deviating. Exactly. Absolutely. Framing them as, you know, he's writing to Khomeini and saying, I'm sure you don't know about this. And I know that you will stop it as soon as as soon as I, you know, sort of tell you. And so there is actually some he experiences some victories in 1984. There's actually some reforms that happen. 1984? 1984, yeah. The famed warden of Evin, the butcher of Evin, is is taken out of his role in that um, job. And there are some other prisoners released and so forth. And this causes rifts in the ruling elite, some of whom blame Montazari for the fact of continued Mujahideen activity, who say basically this you know, releasing these prisoners has led to continued strife and continued violence and Mujahideen are terrorists and, and, and so on and so forth. And that really, so the 1988 prison massacres at that point, he has already established himself as a thorn in the side of Khomeini and the other members of the IRP who want to keep all of this stuff under wraps. You know, he's publicized some of it and talked to, talked to former prisoners, families and, and so forth, advocated on behalf of individual prisoners so by the time 1988 rolls around, you know, he's persona non grata and he's clearly going to not be in the role of the next leader. And it is through his memoir that we have the leaks of the the ruling that Khomeini makes, um, essentially demanding the execution of these prisoners. And I want to note that there's actually some evidence that the plan for the executions predates the end of the war. So typically the narrative given is that the war that ends in summer of 1988 and immediately after these executions begin, possibly as retaliation for this Mujahideen incursion into Iranian territory. But there's evidence that prisoners, political prisoners, were being moved around, sort of rerouted into different uh, prisons, were being organized differently, were starting to be um, interrogated, albeit mildly compared to what happens next. So there's something happening in the late 1987 that prisoners who eventually are released note that they had noted in the months before the executions that something was changing, that something was different, that something was weird, but they didn't really have any sense of what was going to happen next. We don't know definitively that there was a plan at that point in place to undertake these Um, executions. But it certainly seems that there was something happening and that it's part of a broader project of Khomeini, as Eskandar mentions, Khomeini trying to get his house in order, but knowing that he's ill and is going to die. And we, we see at all of these critical junctures, Khomeini essentially sides with or takes the kind of radicalizing choice. You know, he's, he has the um, opportunity, for instance, to tell the revolutionary hostage takers at the U.S. embassy to go home or to kind of to relent. He doesn't. He, he uses the opportunity to to sort of further establish revolutionary ethos. This similar thing happens in 1988. Um, whether or not he, we, we don't exactly know the why of the massacre, which is, as Eskander said, quite brutal, quite devastating and enormously sad, right? We don't know the exact why, the reasoning, but clearly the effect of all of these different acts, the Rushdie affair, the executions of these prisoners, um, all of them have the effect of sort of solidifying the most revolutionary sort of ethos imaginable or possible into the very structure of the Islamic Republic. Ibrahim Raisi, the current president of the Islamic Republic, also played a leading role 
in the 1988 prison massacres. And this is a fact that has dogged Raisi um, in his political career afterwards because opponents of the government are, are sort of constantly noting his involvement, although he has never, ever spoken on it. He is current, <laughs> the current president of the country, and some people think he might be the next uh, supreme leader. But he is also called a criminal and a murderer, and there's like international courts um, have have named him as an accomplice in this in this in this massacre. So it creates the situation where there are a number of really important figures who, uh, associated with the highest tiers of government um, in the Islamic Republic who have their hands bloody with the with this with this massacre, and they continue to be important personages in the government for the decades to follow, and continue to be important personages today. So the 1988 massacres absolutely play a role in the kind of consolidation of the figures who wind up being among the most important uh, in the aftermath of Khomeini's death. And so returning to that point, how how did Khomeini and Rafsanjani partner to reshape Iran along the lines that perhaps Khomeini had desired, but that were also somewhat new in the sense that they would you know, be described as this Thermidor-like period. So as we were saying, um, Rastanjani basically takes over this consolidated, this sort of rather powerful presidential role. Uh, Khamenei takes up the role of the supreme leader. From the very beginning, though, he has something of a legitimacy deficit, um, exactly because of his uh, negligible um, clerical credentials. And as I said, as many dispute the fact that he has sort of the, the most um, rudimentary qualifications that um, a cleric requires. And this is something we should dispute it. But then following, obviously, his assumption to the role of supreme leader, the ample pressure would be applied to certain religious um, leaders, senior religious clergymen, to sort of acknowledge that he did, in fact, uh, have such learning. But I think the, the main consideration was very much, both by uh, Khomeini and people immediately around him, was having um, at least this duo that were politically savvy, um, had a de- degree of political discernment. And this is actually a qualification which then appears in the constitution, actually having sort of this degree of political discernment is necessary for someone occupying the role of supreme leader. And often um, he would be very much contrasted with Ayatollah Montezari, who was from a very kind of humble background in a rather um, a small, a very small kind of village in in Esfahan. And he was seen as being very politically naive, uh, being very learned, but very politically naive. And it was actually, and often, and his actually his letters to Khomeini, um, in a sense, protesting or uh, remonstrating about what was going on in the prisons was seen as him being, you know, airing out the dirty laundry of the system. And that was something which definitely was not wanted. So anyway, Rafsanjani Khamenei very quickly moved to normalise relations, to try and rebuild relations with the Gulf states. As I said, um, Rafsanjani very sort very, some sort of commander, very, you know, very humble title, commander of uh, the reconstruction and they were just very aware that the that there needed to be, in a sense, a, a serious change in how the Islamic Republic oriented um, to the world if the regime was basically going to to survive. Um, 
So Rasandrani himself, very you know, he he saw himself in the vein or very much in the model of uh, a reformer of sorts, a top-down maybe authoritarian uh, reformer, but very much a reformer. Uh, before the revolution, he actually wrote like a book about Amir Kabir, who was a well-known Qajar era reformer who was actually killed by, you know, at the order of Nasruddin Shah. Um, and so actually speculates that uh, Rafsanjani met a similar sort of fate um, uh, in his old age, though. Um, so, yeah, he very much saw himself as rationalising the bureaucracy. He saw himself as ally, and he was very much part of this faction called the New Right. So allied with uh, elements within the bazaar, but also a kind of a new religious technocratic class, some who had been sort of educated in the United States, but many who were actually seen as competent, having sort of technical knowledge, able to kind of realise this sort of developmentalist sort of project. It's also in this period that um, many people will sort of talk about the the emergence of the so-called um, the, the white-collared sort of workers. So it was seen very much as a, a period or inaugurating a period where ideological commitment as a commitment and just belief uh, in the system would be, in a sense, um, supplanted by um, loyalty to the system, of course, but uh, technocratic expertise, getting things done, uh, very much like in the model of lots of uh, middle-income uh, development says trying to ensure sort of economic um, growth. But obviously, uh, Ras Sanjani saw this very much through, um, you know, the necessity of bringing in foreign capital, hence the, the need for some degree of detente and normalization with regional powers, and even um, reaching out to the United States in the period of um, George H.W. Bush over the hostage crisis in Lebanon, where Iran tried to actually intervene and, and actually use its influence to release um, some Western hostages and thought that they should actually by goodwill, which it actually, it, as, as it turned out, it didn't. But, you know, they were very much um, of the mind that there had to be a rethinking um, and, a, and and actually just doing away with a lot of the sort of the status policies which had been championed by the Khomeini's left during the 1980s and very much, you could say, like a sort of, form of military Keynesianism in the course of the eight-year war with um, Iraq to shift towards, yeah, um, a focus on attracting foreign investment privatization of um, sort of major industries and state enterprises, something which actually was um, not allowed for by Article 44 of the Constitution, which actually very, very explicitly um, stated that sort of all major industries and natural monopolies and so on had to be actually nationalized. So it's very much an attempt to try and circumvent that and sort of pursue um, policies of kind of privatization. There's also a very, very important moment, uh, and this is sort of in the fourth majlis um, in 1992, so the fourth parliament, we could say, of 1992, where through this agreement between Khamenei, uh, Rafsanjani and other sort of right-aligned clerics, um, through the means of the Guardian Council, the Guardian Council arrogates this power of um, approbate, what's called approbatory supervision, which is actually, you can find it in the Constitution, or it's a certain reading of the Constitution, where it empowered the Guardian Council to disqualify candidates standing in elections. And this then allowed uh, Rasanjani, Khamenei, and also the traditional right, uh, so many of these sort of mercantile interests sort of associated with what was called the Islamic Coalition Society, allowed them to disqualify really much, very much purge in a way, from um, the elected institutions, 
um, the Khomeinists left, sort of the all of these sort of politi- all of these sort of political figures who were not only seen as political or factional rivals or adversaries, but obviously under the broad umbrella previously of Khomeini's um, leadership, were also seen as very much as a hindrance to Khamenei and Rastanjani's project of normalization, because still, still in like the late 80s, early 90s, you would get um, members of this faction both, you know, calling for sort of saying that, you know, Khomeini's fatwa against Salman Rushdie had to definitely be pursued. Um, the export of the revolution was very much still, very, you know, something to be, you know, was very much on the agenda. Status policies and nationalisation and a focus on economic justice, again, was very much the, you know, central to the regime's identity. And these were all things which Rafsanjani really wanted to push to the margins. He thought they were a hindrance to his to his project and what he thought actually um, needed to happen. And obviously, the arrogation of this power of approbatory supervision is ironically would then subsequently come to bite <laughs> him pretty badly. It's uh, pretty ironic. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, it's a very, very important period. And also, and one other thing just to mention before I finish is that it's also in this period that obviously we see the, you know, this huge, huge, huge war mobilization in the form of the Revolutionary Guards in the war effort with Iraq. And there is this question, okay, what do we do now? with these idle um, soldiers, really. So there is actually, um, so increasingly, this is where actually Rassanjani and Khamenei start inviting or start basically basically giving um, various domestic um, contracts and projects in construction and infrastructure and so on to um, the Revolutionary Guards and actually mobilising them along those lines. And this obviously then sets up this problem, which then will emerge later, where the Revolutionary Guard increasingly emerges as this sort of uh, not only a military powerhouse, but an economic powerhouse and sort of, in, and, and sort of Iran's own military industrial complex, the seeds of which begin uh, in this period. <laughs> That was part four of my interview with Eskander Siddiqui Borajerdi and Gulnar Nikpur. Stay tuned as our last episode on the history of modern Iran is released in the coming days. Eskander Siddiqui Borajerdi is a professor of contemporary politics and modern history of the Middle East at Goldsmiths College, University of London, and the author of Revolution and Its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran. Golnar Nikpor is a professor of history at Dartmouth College with an interest in histories of law, incarceration, and rights in modern Iran, and is currently finishing her first book project, A History of Iranian Prisons and Carcerality in a Global Context. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, anybody who knows anything of history knows that great social changes are impossible without the feminine ferment. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Fiorio Frankos and Ben Maybe. A really big thanks to Nushin Samimi and Sarah Hassani for helping put these episodes together. And to Eskandar and Golnar, too. This Iran series was a truly collaborative effort. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also rate and review us. 
Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling friends about the podcast. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Thank you.